Looking for a unique gift? A new piece of art for your collection? Or a signed copy of my book? Head on over to FelixEddy.com. That's www.felixeddy.com. Thank you. Hi. My name is David McLean. I am the creator of this podcast. Last episode was called Nine, and I, I made a joke that for the first time you didn't necessarily have to go and listen to episodes one through eight uh, to listen to this one, although it might help, but you definitely want to l- listen to episode zero. Uh, this is episode 10. It's probably true that you don't necessarily have to listen to episodes one through eight, but you're definitely going to want to listen to episode nine. Episode zero is a good one, too. That episode is just a summation of everything that happens in the book, The Time Travelers Resort and Museum, which I wrote. And this is basically a sequel to. Uh, Anyway, thanks for listening. I think I'm always supposed to tell people to subscribe and write a review or something. Uh, Anyway, the news is next. You're listening to WXYZ live from the island of Santiago, and this is the Time Traveler's News and World Report. Time traveling news and information for the discerning time traveler from any timeline. I'm Fergus McCartney. Today's approximate aggregate date is the 8th of August, 3202. Today's news is recorded in glorious mono. If your gramophone has Bluetooth, you'll be able to play this on it. Now, here's the post apocalyptic report. Northside Santiago Carousel has been closed pending repair. Apparently someone with advanced cybernetic experience added animatronics to all the horses, giving them a sophisticated AI and then programming them for evil. The Santiago Police Department suggested that the crime may be linked to a series of graffiti tags left on the north side of the island with the slogan, The Androids Come Out at Night. For now, this reporter is staying neutral. Kylie Minogue will be playing a show next week with her new backup band, The Bad Seeds, Saturday night at the restored Sydney Upper House in West Santiago. The Upper House was rescued from the bottom of the ocean floor during the 30th century and brought to the island and restored by Banjo Patterson at his own personal expense. No word yet on whether or not they will be playing Walsing Matilda, but it's probably a safe bet. Local authorities are investigating a one-spaceship crash in eastern Santiago. The driver, whose name and species have not been released, has claimed he lost control of the vehicle. That's the post-apocalyptic report for this morning. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. And now, the infinitely spiraling clock. The continuing story... Of one man lost in time. The Magic Store. What is offensive to one person is occasionally hysterical to their best friend. Do you slap his face? Spree asked, laughing when Alice told her about getting patted on the bum by the elevator operator. No, Alice insisted. I probably should have done, though. Cheeky bastard. 
We don't have to stay here long, Spring said, flopping down on the bed. The room was more practical and less ornate than the lobby, but it was still impressive, with twin beds, an elegant bath, and a balcony that overlooked the San Francisco Valley. It smelled like cigarettes and alcohol, so Alice opened a window to let in fresh air and sunshine. When she looked out the open door to the balcony, there was still a hint of bitterness in her eyes. I know we don't have to stay here long, and believe me, I don't intend to. I was born in this century, and I feel responsible for it. This is a great era. It's even a great country, too. But I'm afraid you're going to see all of the ugliness it offers first. Spring sighed. In real life, she wasn't much older than Alice, but she was born two centuries earlier and had lived a life free from all of the distractions that plagued modern society. As such, she frequently seemed to have keener insight into how the world worked. There's always an ugly side to life, no matter where you go. I don't think that's true, Alice protested, but even as the words came out of her mouth, they sounded like a lie. Her own era certainly was far from idyllic. Racism, sexism, terrorism, and any other ism you could name had to be placed alongside the internet, the moon landing, and the latte in the modern era's ledger. And while there was more black than red, it wasn't as if things were perfect. The internet in particular seemed to be both a blessing and a curse. Perhaps things would be better in the future. Spring seemed to guess her thoughts. Au centiempo, in the future. England is underwater, isn't it? Alice nodded. Santiempo, the home of the Time Traveler's Resort and Museum, existed in a distant future where most of the Earth was underwater. Alice owned a home on what was known as Mount Everest, not too far from where Edmund Hillary made his base camp. It was a beautiful, almost idyllic place. But it was also true that Britain, and all of Europe for that matter, were under the ocean. It is, Alice agreed. Spring smirked. If you don't mind my saying so, that seems pretty ugly to me, she said. The Tower of London, Buckingham Palace, Westminster, Stonehenge, the Cliffs of Dover, Salisbury Hill, Oxford, Cambridge, Bath, all of them have been washed away. That's terribly ugly, I'm afraid. There's always something ugly. You just have to see it. Alice stared out at the horizon. Well, tomorrow we're going to a movie studio. With any luck, you might see something beautiful. It turned out the movie studio was not beautiful, but that didn't mean it wasn't interesting. Although an impressive stone arch marched the beginning of the studio lot, inside it could have easily passed for a factory. Probably one that made windows, provided your average window company had an animation department. The predominant architecture of the studio resembled a group of enormous brown shoeboxes that had been placed on the ground at evenly spaced intervals. The people, on the other hand, were impressive. It was a busy place, with studio employees of all sorts moving about in almost every direction. There were ordinary-looking people, or at least ordinary-looking for the age, but there was something impressive about the way that they carried themselves as if they were working on a rough draft of the Magna Carta. Alice supposed that they had good reason to feel that way, as someone in the immediate vicinity was probably working on a movie that would be considered a classic by the time she was born. 
She wondered if this was the best place to introduce spring to the 20th century. She supposed their experience there couldn't be any worse than the one at the hotel. The Fergus drove the Duesenberg through the studio lot slowly, occasionally honking the car to get people out of the way. They rolled through the lot at a leisurely pace and parked in front of the only tall building there, an impressive stone structure that had a water fountain in front of it. Alice realized that it was a bold move pulling up in front of the office of a major studio head and asking to see the top man, but she didn't know what else to do. She hoped that the stature of the Duesenberg would smooth their path into the building, and if it didn't, well, she would think of something. She was wearing a lovely black and white dress along with a large white hat with a wide brim. She hoped that if it hid enough of her face, she might pass for a movie star. If she didn't, well, she would think of something for that, too. The doorman gave Alice a curt nod, and she did her best to stride confidently past him. So far, so good, she thought. As she walked into the building, Spring followed quickly behind her. Alice was glad that Spring was with her. Spring's cheerfulness would bolster her confidence and might make any attempt to forcibly remove them from the building seem more like a misunderstanding and less like a police matter. Swallowing hard, she walked up to the receptionist at the front desk and said, I'm looking for Mr. Disney's office. That the woman at the front desk was an inspiring actress probably went without saying. This was Hollywood, after all. The janitor probably had headshots. The receptionist was thin, blonde, and probably had won Miss Congeniality at a beauty contest in a small town in Iowa somewhere. But this being Hollywood, she was considerably further down the food chain than she would have been in Davenport. As such, she was regulated to front desk duty, and she seemed to view Alice with a lot more hostility than Alice was used to. As another young woman, Alice represented competition for a valuable commodity. Do you have an appointment? The receptionist asked, icily. Oh, I'm not here to see Mr. Disney, Alice said. I'm the personal assistant to Mr. Terence White. My boss is sitting in Mr. Disney's waiting room right now. He left his wallet in the restaurant this morning. I was hoping I could return it to him. This was a lie, but a calculated one that was backed up by the facts at hand. In the first place, Alice knew that T.H. White actually did have a meeting with Walt Disney this morning. She had read as much in his biography. She hoped that the idea of a misplaced wallet sounded plausible, and she even had a men's wallet stuffed in her purse just in case someone asked to see it. She was also sure that her own natural English accent would make the lie believable. Alice's experiences dating American men had led her to find that they were particularly gullible when speaking to someone from the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. None of this made a particularly big difference in calming Alice's nerves, and her stomach did flip-flops as she spoke. The receptionist shrugged. Whether she thought Alice was telling the truth was difficult to tell. Perhaps she simply didn't view Alice as pretty enough to be an aspiring actress and had given up any preconceived notion that she was competition. Take the elevator to the fifth floor, she said. After that, the door is at the end of the hall. You can't miss it. Alice thanked the receptionist and then walked over to the lift. Spring followed. 
I would never get used to these things, Spring said, stepping into the lift. I don't like the way they make my stomach feel. Nobody does, Alice agreed, but it's better than walking up five flights of stairs. They stepped out of the lift and walked down a long hallway toward a stately oak door. The receptionist was right. You couldn't miss it. The enormous brown door said Walt Disney, President, in large black letters on an opaque window. Just below that, just in case you couldn't read, there was a gold-plated silhouette of a familiar-looking mouse. Alice swallowed and stepped through the door. Alice would have thought that the room on the other side of the door would have been designed to impress, the kind of space where even movie stars and directors would stare at the walls a little wide-eyed. In reality, on the other side of the door was an ordinary waiting room, one which would not have looked out of place in a dentist's office. An older and less attractive secretary sat behind a large desk doing her nails. Across from the desk, a group of men in suits sat uncomfortably in hard-backed chairs, smoking cigars and glancing down at the coffee table, with old issues of Life magazine spread out in an accordion fashion. Only a picture on the wall behind the secretary indicated that they were everywhere extraordinary. It was a hand-drawn picture of a mouse, captaining a steamboat that had been placed in a gilded frame. The drawing itself wasn't much, but if you looked closely, you could see the pencil marks around the ears and an erasure near the nose. Still, someone had built an empire out of that drawing. It was an intimidating thought. Alice walked up to the secretary. Do you have an appointment? The secretary asked in much the same manner as the first one did. Like the first one, she looked Alice up and down, although this time it was mostly down. No, Alice said. I'm actually not here to see Mr. Disney. I'm looking for Terence White. Behind Alice, a surprisingly young man looked up. Spring tapped her on the shoulder and Alice spun around. She did her best not to look startled. All along, she had been picturing him as older, gray-haired, and wise. The man in front of her couldn't have been more than thirty-five. His skin was tan, and his eyebrows expressed bewilderment, both of which were probably natural conditions for an English native of Sri Lanka who probably considered himself very out of place, which is exactly what he was. Mr. White... Alice asked. T.H. White put out his cigarette in the crystal ashtray on the coffee table. Yes, he said. Alice wondered if he thought she worked for the movie studio. Given her lack of an American accent, that didn't seem likely. She wondered if this would work for her or against her. She supposed it could go either way. My name is Alice, Alice Anderson. Mind if I have a quick word? T.H. White clearly didn't know what to say. He glanced over Alice's shoulder at the secretary behind the desk. It will only be a moment, Alice said, doing her best to smile warmly. She turned to look at the secretary. You'll let us know when Mr. Disney is ready for him, won't you? The secretary nodded. He's in a Pinocchio meeting right now. It may be a while. Terry White stood up. Alice placed her arm on his elbow and led him out into the hallway. 
Spring followed. Yes, miss, what can I do for you? He asked. Alice had come a ridiculously long way to ask him what was probably going to sound like the world's stupidest question, and she wasn't even sure how to bring the subject up. Keith Quick would have simply blurted it out, gotten an answer, and then dashed down the hall. Alice lacked Keith's blurting skills and took a subtler approach. It's about your book, she said simply. The sword in the stone. T.H. White smiled. Nearly everything is today, he replied. Mr. Disney didn't invite me here for a chess game, after all. It's a beautiful book, Spring interjected. Although Spring had been born in the 19th century, she took a great delight in reading. When she learned that they were going to meet a famous author, she had picked up the sword and the stone and read it cover to cover. This was probably a good idea. Alice had read the Once in Future King in primary school and was a little fuzzy on the details. Thank you, Mr. White said graciously. I'm not sure that it's finished yet, actually, but they seem to want to make a motion picture of it just the same. It's the rest of the story that I wanted to talk to you about, Alice pushed. I was wondering if you could tell me about Excalibur. T.H. White frowned. All right, he said, clearly unsure of why this would be a point of contention. What can you tell me about it? Not much, Mr. White observed, as it isn't real. This was astoundingly, impressively wrong. Alice had, in fact, held the shattered remains of Excalibur in her hand just a few months ago, but it was pointless to divulge that bit of information. T.H. White was an intelligent, literate man. Telling him about the profoundly silly rules that govern the universe would simply embarrass him. I realize that the sword is an imaginary object, Alice admitted. But I can tell from your book that you must have done a lot of research. What can you tell me about its history, such as it is, anyway? White considered this. Alice was relieved to see that he didn't look upset, but rather seemed to be treating this as an impromptu English lesson. Perhaps he doesn't care for meetings with Hollywood executives, Alice thought. Alice didn't know this, but T.H. White would have been justified in feeling so, although Walt Disney would secure the movie rights from Mr. White in the next few minutes. The film would be stuck in development hell for the next quarter of a century. Well, like most things in Arthurian legend, it probably existed long before anyone got around to writing it down, and probably started without a whole lot of definition. Even the name Excalibur really only means cut steel. It's just a word meaning sword. Any importance put on it would have been added by later writers, like Thomas Mallory and myself, I suppose. Whosoever pulleth this sword from this sound shall be my king of all England, Spring quoted. Very good, T.H. White complimented. The sword is, of course, pulled from the stone by Arthur, who then conquers all of the Isles of Britain before being seduced by his sister Morgan, the Queen of Air and Darkness. Ooh, that's good. I'll have to remember that for later. It isn't the end of the story I'm worried about, Alice said. It's, well, it's the beginning that's bothering me, or rather, the things that happen before the beginning. 
Do you mean before Arthur pulls it from the stone? T.H. White asked. Then answering his own question, he said, It was driven into the stone by Uther, Arthur's father, on the hour of his death. Alice felt that she was getting close. Yes, she answered in a voice that was anxious, but agreeable. But before that, who forged the sword? Who gave it to Uther? T.H. White looked like he had never considered the matter. Different legends say different things, he said, a trifle evasively. What I want to know is, what do you think? Alice asked. Well, I'm not sure my opinion is necessarily any more or less valid than anybody else's, T.H. White admitted. There are some who say it was the Lady in the Lake, a figure so deliberately vague that it's difficult to think of her as anything other than an outline with little fairies flying around it. You might think of this as the magical version of the story. The phrase watery tart floated through Alice's mind without anything to connect it to. There are others who suggest that the sword may have been brought to England by the Romans and may have originally been made for Julius Caesar. You might call this the realistic version of the story. All right, Alice asked. Which one are you more inclined towards? Alice tried to hide the desperation in her voice. The truth was that as innocent as the question seemed, an awful lot hung in the balance. Alice understood that whatever T.H. White said would turn out to be the truth, no matter what he said. And whatever the answer, it would change her life forever. T.H. White ran his fingers through his blonde hair. Personally, I'd like to think it was Merlin, he said. Alice swallowed. What makes you say that? she asked. T.H. White shrugged. Nothing, I suppose, except that he was always my favorite. Still is, for that matter. I can tell from reading your book, Spring agreed. Thank you. T.H. White smiled. In the book you say that Merlin lives through time backward, Spring pointed out. Something in Alice's heart went thunk. And that's true, T.H. White said. That's a fascinating concept, Spring said brightly. The author gave a very self-satisfied smile. Do you think so? he asked. I thought that part was rather good, really. I doubt that the cartoon people will use that bit, though. What else can you tell me about Merlin? Alice asked. Merlin is a rather controversial figure, really. In an earlier time, he would have been seen as sacrilegious, hence the stories about him being the son of a demon who seduced a nun. I doubt that the cartoon people will use that bit either. Probably not, Alice agreed. I prefer to think of him as a kindly old teacher. T.H. White said, the sort of professor I had when I was at Cambridge. I had a few of those myself, Alice agreed. Funny thing about Merlin, T.H. White continued, he never seems to meet Lancelot. Why is that? Alice asked. I have no idea, truth be told, T.H. White admitted. It seems to be some sort of unspoken rule. The two men represent the progression of the story. Merlin, the magician, represents the world of magic and sorcery. Lancelot, the warrior, represents the world as we know it. 
The separation between the two characters represents the cleft between the two. Have you ever seen real magic? The question came from Spring. It sounded innocent, and perhaps it was, but Alice knew the story behind it. A few months earlier, they had seen a man disappear into thin air, which even in Alice's world was supposed to be impossible. She had known the man as Jack Cassidy, but the rest of the world knew him as Professor Moriarty. He had tried to stop Alice's life before it had begun. They were glad to see the back of him. Real magic, T.H. White asked rhetorically. Only twice. Twice, Spring asked. T.H. White nodded. The first time was when I was at school. I saw a performance by the great Houdini. What that man could do was incredible. And the other, Spring asked. The other was last year in a film made by the man I am waiting to see, T.H. White said, which is why I am here. Alice thanked T.H. White for his time, and the two women found their way off the studio lot. Katie was beautiful, we went to the prom. I used to play guitars with my old friend John. Tommy used to fill my mother with rage. Jenny and I once kissed on the stage. Rob was a guy man at my first job. He hung out with Mike Boy with tea and knob. Donna was this girl with beautiful eyes. Whenever you saw her, she looked surprised. Those are the people I had to live with and without. Chris became a lawyer, he's got three boys. Jesse found teaching was full of joys. Terry's in nursing, she still looks great. The ones I used to like now are sort of hate. Amy's got a restaurant with some kind of theme. Steve got involved in a pyramid scheme. Greg's in IT, he's the next CEO. Anne's got a jet and job and no place to go. Those are the people I had to live with and without. Then there was you, always in true. Don't know what I'd do. If I hadn't met you, Harry's in Paris, Susan's in Spain, Bill's across town, I'll see him again. Patty moved to Texas, she seems to like it there. I don't know where Liz went, I hope she's somewhere. Marty moved to Albany, God knows why. Betty moves somewhere with a whole lot of sky Wade and Jack live over in Provincetown Me, I'm sitting here letting my folks down You and I 
we're the only ones I can't live without You and I, we're the only ones I can't live without Take us back to the hotel, Fergus, Alice said, stepping into the Duesenberg. Jet lag was hitting her and her head was starting to pound. One of the inevitable difficulties of time travel is extreme jet lag. There is absolutely no grouchiness in the world like a time traveler who has been forced to wake up two centuries earlier than usual. Do you feel like you learned something? Spring asked as the Duesenberg pulled out of the lot. Possibly, Alice said. She wasn't sure how to put into words the thought that was swimming around in her head. What does possibly mean? Spring asked. It's possible that Keith is actually Merlin, Alice nodded wearily. If he made the sword and Mr. White thinks that Merlin made it, then the chances are they are the same person. Spring nodded. That was a conclusion I came to as well. Alice stared out the window and watched the sun dip down towards the ocean. This man who is supposed to be my husband never does oddness by halves, she thought. She would very, very much like to return to her house in San Tiempo, have a bath and go to bed, but that didn't seem to be in the cards just now. Spring seemed to sense this, and when she spoke again, her tone was soft and kind. How do you feel about that? Spring asked. I suppose it makes sense, doesn't it? Alice sighed. If Keith Quick put the symbol we found on the sword, it would make sense that he was someone from Camelot. I suppose it was really just a matter of whom. Spring nodded. Are you upset because this might mean you won't find him as quickly as you would like? Alice frowned. I'm disappointed. Well, the idea that Keith Quick is Merlin might be interesting, it doesn't get me any closer to getting him back. I remember Merlin having a long white beard, so now that you mention it, yes, I'm also upset that this means that Keith has a long journey ahead of him that I can't be any part of. Alice looked at Spring. Much to her surprise, her friend was smiling. What? Alice asked. What are you on about? Magic, Spring grinned. Judging by the tone in her voice, Spring clearly thought that this one word was enough of an explanation. What about it? Alice asked. Moriarty disappeared into thin air, Spring pointed out. That's magic. We saw it with our own eyes. I know we did, Alice said. I was there. If you were there and you saw it, then why don't you believe it? You still don't believe in magic. I can tell you don't. Alice sighed. She was a woman of science and a product of 21st century astrophysics. As such, it didn't make any difference if she had seen Moriarty disappear. She couldn't simply dismiss it as magic. She needed to know how it happened and why. Everything had an explanation. Even the things that Spring would have stared at with awe and wonder. I know what I saw, Alice admitted, doing very little to hide how uncomfortable the subject made her. I'm sure that some day we will be able to explain how he did it exactly. It was magic, Spring insisted. Excalibur, that's magic too. 
Now you've got an idea that Keith Quick might be the most famous wizard of all time. What's your point? Alice asked. Has it occurred to you that the first step toward finding magic is believing in it? Spring asked. Right now you're chasing something you don't really believe exists. It can be difficult to admit when someone has shined a torch on your faults. The truth was that Spring was making a good deal more sense than Alice wanted to admit. I wasn't cut out for this, she grumbled. I'm not sure where to start. Spring patted her on the shoulder in a manner that reminded her of an older sister. Mr. White said he had seen real magic twice, once when Mr. Disney made a motion picture. I believe he must be referring to Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, Alice said, remembering the film, which she'd first seen as a little girl. The other incident he mentioned was seeing Houdini perform. Who's Houdini? Spring asked. A magician, Alice clarified. I've heard of him. He started out working at the circus about 80 years after we did. He's dead now, although I suppose with a time machine we could see him tomorrow if we wanted. There's nothing like a little magic, is there? Spring pointed out. Why don't we go and see some for ourselves? Maybe in the morning, Alice said. Right now I'm terribly, terribly tired. Alice should have taken Spring out on the town that night. This was the golden age of Hollywood. Somewhere out in Los Angeles, Frank Sinatra was probably singing to Rita Hayworth and Ginger Rogers. This was the kind of thing you didn't want to miss. But the truth of the matter was, Alice was depressed. Keith Quick was a lost needle in the very biggest of haystacks, and the one lead that Alice had found left more questions than answers. Spring did have a point about magic. It was the connecting thread in all of this, but how did you follow something which, by its very definition, defied all logic and reason? Alice didn't know. She asked Spring if she wouldn't mind if she had a night in and suggested to her friend that she could have the Fergus show her to the best nightclub in town. Spring agreed to this and headed out on the town in the Duesenberg, wearing a new white dress with their android attendant in tow. Alice sat down in her room for the evening, ordered room service, and tried to figure out where the hell the man who would be her husband might be. The only thing that Alice could be sure of was that this wasn't a job for an astrophysicist. A poet, maybe, or a philosopher. It didn't help matters that she knew remarkably little about Merlin. So she pulled out the laptop which she had brought from the future, a 23rd century model she'd picked up a few days ago, complete with an inner century USB Wi-Fi dongle, which she was paying exorbitant rates for, and typed the word Merlin into the search engine. Even with the help of the internet, Merlin was something of an enigma. He didn't seem to be created as much as he faded into existence, with several aspects of his character that Alice would have taken as a given, not having been created until the 20th century. He was, depending on who was telling the story, either a good man or a bad one, a powerful demon or a kindly old teacher. About the only common thread among the stories was that he was old, or at any rate, he was old when he met King Arthur. 
It occurred to Alice that old age in the Dark Ages probably began around 38. The older the stories got, the less he seemed like a wizard. Usually the magic he did struck Alice as something any modern person could have done. Eventually she found an old manuscript where he just seemed to be little more than a poet and a storyteller and not a proper wizard at all. Nonetheless, there were a few similarities between the character of Merlin and everything that Alice had learned about Keith Quick. For one thing, there was the idea that Merlin had been living his life backward. This wasn't exactly how a time traveler lived, but it was the way an uninformed person from another century might have described a time traveler had they met one. For another... Merlin seemed to be largely a creature who lived by his wits. He was tremendously powerful, but not in the sense of anyone else in the Arthurian saga. His power lay in his wisdom, his foresight, and to a certain extent in prognostication. The latter would have seemed like magic at the time, but predicting things like Arthur shall be king of all the Britons would be a relatively easy task for anyone who had ever seen a motion picture. All of this did seem to fall in line with Keith Quick as Alice knew him, but there were other things that didn't necessarily fit the person she had known. Merlin was eventually imprisoned in a tree after falling in love with and being tricked by the lady in the lake. Who is that? she thought. Alice found herself drawn to a pre-Raphaelite painting of Merlin being seduced by the Lady in the Lake. Merlin was certainly older than Keith, and the Lady in the Lake had darker hair and was a good deal thinner than Alice, but still there was something there. In the painting, Merlin wasn't wearing a traditional wizard's hat, but had on a leather cap similar to what a monk would wear. It was conspicuously lacking a set of goggles, but basically Merlin was wearing Keith Quick's aviator hat. Did the painter know something about Merlin? Did he have access to some sort of ancient manuscript that might reveal something, or had he simply been working from his imagination? Did it matter either way? Alice closed the browser on her laptop Without even really being conscious that she did it, she pulled up her computer's word processor and started typing. Dear Keith, it's been three months that I've been looking for you and I don't know where to start. Everything that's happened to you is my fault, and I'm sorry. I didn't understand this strange existence of ours, and I thought that, well, it doesn't really matter what I thought because I was wrong. I wish that there was some way I could undo what I did. Even with a time machine, life doesn't seem to work that way. What's past has passed, and no amount of liquid time is going to unbreak the things that I have broken. The first time I met you, you asked me if we had met. Well, we've met now, but we haven't done much more than that, and I'm afraid if I don't find you, we never will. I know that you remember an entire life that we had together, and I'm not sure if I should grieve for something that I have never known, or if I should move on. I'm hoping that somehow I figure out how to find you, even though I'm looking for a water drop in an ocean of time. 
I don't know what to say except that I'm sorry. I almost hate to say that because it sounds cheap, but I am sorry. Truly, from the bottom of my heart, I don't know if I can find you, but I promise that I will try. Your friend, Alice. Alice saved the letter. One day she would read it to him, she hoped. Until then, she would follow the breadcrumbs as best she could. It was late in the evening when Spring came back to their room. I checked on your metal man, she said pleasantly. It turns out that he really was metal all over. I don't need the details, Alice said with a smile. I'd have to say I rather like this modern era of yours, Spring said, flopping down on her bed. I'm glad you like it, Alice said. So where to next? Spring asked. I don't suppose you want to look for Keith in Paris, do you? Only I've never been there and I've always wanted to see it. Have you heard about the Eiffel Tower? Alice asked. It was built after your time. Is it beautiful? Spring asked. I suppose it must be. Everything in Paris is beautiful. It is beautiful, although I suppose it would seem very modern. Although when I was born it was over a hundred years old. Well, I've got to see it at some point then. What a funny world this is, Spring laughed. You have no magic, the pictures move, and someone thought Paris needed improving. We take things as we find them, Alice shrugged. So, do you have some sort of idea where we are headed next? Spring asked, doing her best to move the conversation towards a more pressing topic. Lacking any better idea, I suppose I will take you up on the suggestion that we find some magic, Alice said. Spring's bright eyes sparkled. Brilliant, she said. Do you want to go and see the motion picture that Mr. White was talking about? Alice shook her head. It's a beautiful movie, but with respect I've seen it, and we can watch it on the telly when we get home. Spring nodded. All right, then. I imagine you want to find this Houdini person, the magician. I've never seen him, but I know him by reputation. Alice admitted. I suppose that he does seem like he'd be the person to talk to. And you said he was dead, so we would have to use a time orb to find him, Spring asked. And that's right, Alice said. She couldn't help but notice that Spring had a bit of a mad gleam in her eye. What? Alice asked, confused. What are you on about? Is it possible that Mr. Houdini might have played at a theatre in New York at one point or another? I'm sure that he did, Alice admitted. I've always wanted to see New York, Spring said. I've heard there are buildings there that are ten stories high. They packed up the next day and headed for the airport. The Fergus picked them up in the Duesenberg shortly after breakfast, and they found their way back to what would one day be known as LAX. It was a bright, sunny day, which was pleasant, and Alice and Spring enjoyed the warm weather, although, of course, it was L.A. and would be sunny and pleasant until the end of time. Still, it wasn't the L.A. that Alice was familiar with. It was smaller and prettier, almost quaint in a way. 
Alice supposed there was a reason that they would be able to put a telescope here. Unfortunately, she would have to postpone meeting Edward Hubble for another trip. She would probably just end up taking the piss out of him anyway. When they got to the airport hangar, Alice found her plane wasn't where she had left it. It seemed to have been moved from its spot on the taxiing runway to a place in an empty field a hundred yards away. Alice frowned. It wasn't unheard of that a plane got moved. Sometimes more space was needed for a larger plane coming in. Even so, Alice couldn't think of any reason it would end up that far out. She crossed the field slowly, spring following behind her dutifully. Much to Alice's surprise, there was a man with his head stuck all the way into the engine compartment. Who it was, Alice couldn't say, although he was thin and wearing coveralls. Alice raised her eyebrows. Being a woman in this era was hard enough. Harder still would be confronting a man about moving her property. Still, she had to give it a go. Alice cleared her throat loudly. Pardon me, she said. Just a second, a voice from inside the engine said. It was hard to hear clearly, but it sounded like the voice of a young American male, someone who had grown up in the flat plains of someplace like Iowa and who had done so fairly recently. What are you doing to my plane? Alice asked. Fixing it, the voice said, not looking up. It wasn't broken. Alice objected. Yes, I had a feeling you'd say that. That's why I'm trying to put it right again, the voice added. One of the cylinders isn't firing correctly. Alice was incredulous. How do you know? she asked. Howard Hughes was bringing in one of his big ugly planes, the voice said, and somebody told me to move it, so I did, and it made a hideous noise. I brought it out here to take a look. I figured... The young man closed the hatch to the engine compartment and stood up. In addition to his coveralls, he was wearing a set of goggles and a tremendous amount of grease. Keith Quick shielded his eyes from the sun and stared at them. He was young, younger than Alice had ever seen him. His eyes were bright and his smile was carefree. His hair was longer and wavy and his body was angular and lean. He was beautiful, like a star. Alice realized that this was the moment when her relationship with Keith really began. Of all the stories that Spring ever told Helen, this was by far the most surprising. It wasn't that her parents met for the first time, or that they had been to Walt Disney's office, or even the insinuation that Spring had had sex with a robot. No, it was something much more pedestrian than that. You rode in a plane, Helen exclaimed, clearly shocked. You didn't have wings. You were just a person. Spring fluttered her wings in a manner that suggested she was more than a little embarrassed. Of course. Did you think I was born this way? I never knew, Helen replied. How did you end up getting them? We'll get to that. "'Spring answered obliquely. "'But Helen could have sworn that Spring's wings "'turned just the slightest shade of pink. "'Hi, 
I don't even know what I'm going to say. My name is David McLean. I'm the creator of this podcast. I can say that in pretty much every sense of the word. I just wanted to say thanks for listening. Again, if you want to leave a review and subscribe, that's great. You know, I've gotten so many rejections over the years that you'd think I would toughen up a little and not get all self-conscious about showing people my work, but I don't know, it's been 25 years that I've been a published author and I still feel nervous about it. But if you want to leave a review, that's great. Leave a review, leave a good one, leave a bad one. It's your choice. It's up to you. If you want to subscribe, that's great. If you want to tell someone that you found some really weird podcast created by a guy with more instruments than any human being should have and apparently more free time than anybody realizes, that's great too. Next week, Alice and Keith are going to go meet Houdini. be a date somewhere on the horizon. We'll have to see. That's it. Thanks.